0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Seed to Harvest. I'm excited to bring Winnie CEO Sarah Moskoff onto the show to talk about her journey co founding Winnie, how she's grown as a leader since then, and different tactics she uses to scale her business. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, to give you all some context for what Winnie is, Winnie is a marketplace for childcare built on powerful data systems and backed by a trusted community of parents and providers. So parents use Winnie to discover high-quality local daycares and preschools and learn all about their different programs using detailed descriptions, photos, tuition info, licensing status, availability, data, and more. And then childcare providers use Winnie to fill their open spaces, build their wait lists, get support and resources to run their business efficiently. So Sarah, in 2019, you and your co-founder Annie were both pregnant at the time you raised your Series A. Uh fundraising, from my experience, has been quite the emotional and grueling process. So I can only imagine what that was like going through that process while pregnant. So can you talk a little bit about how your experiences have led you to be more vulnerable with your team? You had a really great tweet about it recently, but I would love to hear more about that. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, first of all, I have like m- raised most of my rounds pregnant. So for a while, I didn't even know what it was like to fundraise not pregnant. <laughs> So, yeah, it probably would have been a lot easier just physically lugging around all that extra weight (laughs) made it physically very grueling. But uh, yeah, my tweet recently, there was just a really terrible article about a leader at Twitter kind of getting emotional and, and showing some emotion in front of her team when she talked about Elon Musk. Buying Twitter. And I was just like, this is authentic leadership. I think, you know, to bring your human qualities and who you are outside of the office into work, I think makes you a better leader. It makes your team able to relate to you better. It makes them understand, you know, why you might be acting or talking to them a certain way, might be because you have other things going on in your life and they can you know, give you a little grace and take things less personally. So I have always found it helps to kind of be authentic and and true to yourself and to show emotion that, you know, when there's good things and there's bad things, it's okay to not be a robot.
0: Yeah. Do you think you were, were you always like that in your career in tech? Or is that something that came up more when you started running Winnie?
1: I have always been pretty open and authentic, but I think I realized it was, you know, not a weakness, which you're kind of always taught, you know, don't ever show anyone that you're crying or you're sad or, you know, have a poker face. You're always told. But yeah, it's actually a strength and it's a huge asset to be able to relate to people. It helps them open up to you also and and share things. And, you know, especially as a CEO, you want your team to share with you what's going on and not, you know, keep things from you that you have to discover at the last minute. So I think being kind of on a more level playing field with your team is just helpful in running the business.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a really great example for your team to be able to be vulnerable in the same way that you are as a leader. So you started out doing research at MIT Media Lab, and then you were a partner technology manager at Google AdSense and then a partner technology manager at YouTube Music. Two of the most, like, incredibly successful programs at both of those companies, and then a group PM at Twitter, then director of product at Postmates before starting Winnie. So I'm curious to hear how your hiring strategy shifted when you went from a director of product to running your own company.
1: Yeah, it's been interesting because when I was a product manager most of my career, you're always told you're the CEO of the product. And it's, you know, a lot like being a CEO. And I'm here to tell you it is nothing like being (laughs) CEO. In fact, I do not work on product really at all here at (laughs) Winning. They've banned me from anything product related. And there's kind of all this stuff about building the business and the company. I love product and thinking about features and working with engineers. And I don't get to do any of that. (laughs) So it's really really different you have to kind of up level yourself and i think you know while in the early days maybe starting a company is maybe a little bit like building a product as soon as you get to any kind of scale and build out a team you really can't be in the weeds anymore you have to hire great people and trust them to do their job and kind of focus on company building
0: mm-hmm I think that every company as it goes through its evolution, you as the CEO fill in different roles or spend time in specific areas of the business, whether that's, as you mentioned before, at the earliest stages, building product or as you grow more to scale, building out your executive team. So what specific areas are you focusing on this phase of the business?
1: Yeah, so at Winnie, we are this interesting kind of two-sided marketplace where we have parents on one side looking for daycare and preschool, and then we have the child care providers on the other side. And we spent, you know, been at this since 2016. So we spent a good amount of time really looking at things from the parent perspective, building out this amazing resource for parents. You know, my co-founder and I are parents and we really came at this from like, what do parents need? And we sort of got to a point with Winnie where and this was a couple of years ago where we realized like we had built this great directory for finding daycare and preschool, but none of that really matters if parents don't actually get the daycare preschool that is accessible, affordable, and high quality that they're looking for. So we need to make these businesses in this industry, the childcare industry, much stronger so that there's more spaces, more affordable spaces more spots for exactly the kind of care you're looking for. And that's, that's a really hard problem. <laughs> and so this phase of the business, I'm really focused on um, really how we strengthen the childcare industry and what we are really uniquely positioned to do as this massive marketplace. Like we have all the demand, all the parents coming to Witty. And that puts us in a really unique position to help. Um, and so I'm really thinking about, like, how do we fix the industry and, and what are we best positioned to help with at Winnie? And what should other companies help with that, you know, we can kind of let them take on those problems? So-
0: yeah, this leads perfectly into my next question. So in a recent Fortune article, you mentioned as moms and as technologists, we use our background building products at Google, Twitter and other top tech companies to understand if we could build technology to solve problems in childcare. What well, we found were myriad opportunities for technology to drive much needed innovation in childcare. So, during your explorations, what other opportunities specifically do you think desperately need innovation in the childcare space?
1: There are so many. Um, so,
0: <laughs> I think we
1: are bread and butter, and what we've really focused on and got our start on is daycare and preschool. So, it's group licensed mm-hmm. care. And why did we start with this? Well, it's the biggest market in child care and no one was doing it. But I think it it is not the only form of child care. People have nannies and babysitters and au pairs and things like you know, drop-in care. And so I think, like, those are all areas that we're sort of just scratching the surface on, really trying to keep our focus on the group license care. And then also thinking about, you know, as you go up the age spectrum of children. We're we really got our start with kids, you know, ages 0 to 5 or 6 who need that kind of like full-time or part-time childcare that isn't provided by public school. But as you go up in age and especially now that I also have older kids, you know, you need different forms of childcare, but the need is still There. You need camps. You need extracurricular activities. You may need tutoring. You need things in the summer and on breaks because the school year doesn't align at all with parents' work schedules. So I think those are also areas that are super important where we're not there yet. And there's so much to fix in really where we are kind of the leader. And so we're also kind of thinking about like, probably more important to us for us to focus on the things that we can really help with right now
0: Mm, yeah thank you so much for sharing i found that really interesting when i was doing more research into like the different articles that you all had had in different magazines like forbes and fortune so i'm curious like personally what specific routines or techniques do you use to maximize your time
1: I had kids. (laughs) It's really amazing. Like, I used to work 24 seven and I would still feel like I needed more hours in the day. Like, I was that person that was using that, you know, free dinner at Google and Twitter. (laughs) They had it. I would come into the office on the weekends. Like, I was constantly working. And I work. much fewer hours now just because Mm -hmm. I can't like I have these other responsibilities but I feel so much more productive and I think becoming a parent really forced me to think about how I'm spending my time and really prioritize and you don't need to be a parent to do this I just needed some forcing function to focus on prioritizing the things I i Wanted to get done rather than just thinking I would have endless time to do, you know, all the things. So now I actually actively prioritize, even within a day, I'll look at all the things I have to do and I'll say these are not important. Maybe I will never do them, or maybe I'll delegate them, or maybe I'll just say if I have time, I'll get to them. But I'm, oh, I'm constantly thinking about what is the highest priority thing for me to be spending my time on. And I think that's a good, good exercise for anyone. You don't have to wait till you have kids to
0: do that exercise. Yeah. And that also leads well into my next question. So what are some of the recent life lessons that you've learned from your kids?
1: The biggest thing is just like being present in the moment. You know, kids are just so—they are the truly authentic creatures, not jaded at all yet. And they just enjoy the moment they're in. They don't think about what's next, really, to a (laughs) fault. It's very hard to get them to (laughs) plan ahead. But I try to take some of that, you know, back to how I lead the team as well. Like, I'm also the kind of person that we hit an awesome milestone or we sign a big customer or we raise money. I'm like, okay, but we got to move on to the next thing, like back to work, everyone. But sometimes you do just need to take a moment and celebrate your wins or reflect on things that didn't go well and just kind of, you know, take it all in, because otherwise you're just constantly moving on to the next thing and and not really enjoy where you're currently at.
0: (laughs) I love that. To backtrack a bit, I was told that when you leave college, no one asks about your GPA. And while that's certainly been true for me, can you share some of the challenges involved with achieving a 5.0 perfect GPA at MIT studying computer science? I studied computer science. My GPA was not <laughs> a 5.0 by any means. So yeah, I would love for you to share a bit about what that experience was like. Yeah, I mean, I
1: am very type A, and I think that was incredibly limiting when I left the world of school and joined Google was my first job, I was used to, you know, getting assignments or tests you study for, and you know exactly what you have to do to get the perfect grade, and you just work really hard and do exactly that. And then I joined Google, and I was given this job, and, like, no one was telling me really what to do. They were just like, oh, well, you're going to work on this area and help improve it. I was like, what? <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> my time and it took me a long time of working in the real world to figure out that especially in a lot of these jobs in tech especially as like a product person no one really tells you what to do you have to figure that out and then a lot of times tell other people what to do and I think that is just a totally different mindset And, and then again I had kind of a big learning curve with Starting my own company, where not only do people not tell you what to do, but they don't tell you if you're doing a good or bad job. You have no boss really, and no one to give you any sort of feedback. Uh, And it's a lot of work to get that feedback from someone. You no longer kind of have your weekly one on one where you hear how you're doing. (laughs) And I think that, again, that like process of like, you have to seek feedback. (laughs) was really challenging and took me a long time so I would say like I don't think school really prepared me all that well for the working world and especially my mindset of like you have to do everything perfectly doesn't relate well to real life where it's actually good to make mistakes and learn because that's how you kind of improve the fastest
0: Right. And in addition to that, prioritizing your time as well. Like that was one of the other lessons that you mentioned. Yeah. It's like it's probably not going to be perfect all the time.
1: Yeah. Uh, and there are things that it's better to do a B job at or a C job at <laughs> so that you can take on other things. It, when you're trying to do everything at an A plus level, you're missing out on maybe other other ways you should be spending your time.
0: Mm. Yeah, I really like that. I think as, especially like being upfront about like, okay, this is not going to be my best work and I'm going to have like a B or C level of prioritization for this task, but I, it will be done is important to communicate. So I'm curious, like at Winnie, what did finding product market fit feel like? Most often, raising a series A is sort of a mark of that. So I'm curious if there's ever a moment where you're like, whoa, like this is going pretty crazy.
1: Yeah. So when we first started Winnie, we were not a childcare marketplace. We were actually a million different things. We kind of had this concept of like, let's help parents find places to go with their kids, including like restaurants and parks and childcare. But it was kind of one of many things we had bitten off. And we spent a long time (laughs) building that. And kind of fooling ourselves into thinking we had product market fit because it's a free product and people were using it. No one was complaining. Kind of going back to my point about like feedback, we were just not getting the right feedback that it wasn't working. But after some time, we were not seeing the growth numbers in that product that we needed to sustain a free product. And we kind of dug in and realized that really there was a one aspect of the product people were using, and that was the childcare piece. And that's when we Mm -hmm. kind of threw away everything else and just focused on that. And I think the big thing we saw when we started working on childcare, was just like the growth was happening without us needing to drive the growth. We were just building the product. So we started with childcare data in San Francisco. We added the rest of California and we moved state by state to the rest of the country. And people just started using it. We were getting tons of search traffic. People were telling other people about it. Like we didn't have to do anything besides really build the thing. And I think that was like, okay, that is one measure of product market fit where you're not just like kind of manually forcing people to use your thing. They're just using it because it's useful. But I think the other big measure is making money which we weren't doing at the time so we started having all this growth and usage and we were like we got it we got product market fit this is awesome but it was still completely free for parents and daycare and preschool providers and so it was great that you know we had millions of people that were using us to find daycare preschool but we were not seeing a dime from that um it wasn't until later that we figured out our business model which is the daycares and preschools are our customers. We are not a transactional marketplace; we're a SaaS enabled marketplace. So they pay us for tools and services and promotion with our audience. Uh, and once we started signing customers and getting people to pay, I think that was real product market fit. It doesn't. It's not enough to just have something people use. You have to have a business model. <laughs> I wish <laughs> I had known that from the beginning I think we would have gotten there a lot faster but we're there now it's been a journey and it's exciting to kind of now be in the place where we have to think about how to scale it but we know that it has a lot of value to our customers
0: yeah that's so funny that you went through those two different iterations of like oh my gosh this is working and then you're like oh there's another challenge ahead that we're gonna (laughs) have to figure out to truly be a product market fit. So I, I think like from my perspective, one of the roles as CEO fills as you get to a more skilled business is telling stories, whether that's about the mission of the company or whether that's like empowering other people to tell a similar story, so you have that like very cohesive story about the company overall. So what does storytelling mean to you and how do you think about dispersing stories throughout your organization?
1: Yeah, I think communication is the most important job of. A CEO, and it is really what I spend all my time on. I think, you know, at a minimum, it's like repeating the same message so many different times, many times in the same way, sometimes in slightly different ways to slightly different audiences. But really, if you're not repeating the same message so often that you feel like you're just a broken record, you're probably not doing your job. Communicating. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And so it can be really like mind numbing at times. It's like, didn't I just say this a million times in like just slightly different ways? But that's kind of the job. It's like getting that same message out there. Then sometimes exactly the same, yeah. slightly yeah. iterating on the message as your business grows and what you're trying to get out there changes. But really, it's like, could say the same thing over and over again
0: (laughs) so Sarah what's one thing you think any aspiring entrepreneur can do to set themselves up for a career success even if they're still in school focus on people and connections I think that I really
1: underappreciated especially when I was at MIT Um, and many of my classmates at MIT have gone on to be just amazing entrepreneurs or investors number of them have invested in my company or connected me with employees or customers. Um, Same thing with the folks that I've worked with at Google and YouTube and Twitter and Postmates. Co-founder or VP of engineering or from Postmates. Like the connections that you make at these places are more valuable than anything you will learn or do. And I did not appreciate that enough when I was in it. And I think if I would have spent just a little more time on it, I I can only imagine the kind of order of magnitude value I would have gotten out of that later.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for making the time to record this episode and being so vulnerable about the different lessons that you've learned throughout your business and sharing some of the techniques that you think about when scaling Winnie. I so deeply appreciate it. To close this out, Sarah, do you have any additional things that you want to touch on? And then where can people find you on the internet?
1: They can find me on Truth Social. I'm just that's the, <laughs> the, <with> the Trump <laughs> version of Twitter. You cannot find me there. I'm on Twitter. I'm at SM. I'm on every social media besides Truth Social or whatever that is. <laughs> or you can find yeah. Winnie at Winnie.com. Um, and it is free to use for parents. It's also free for providers to sign up and get started. So there's really no excuses to people not checking this out.
0: I love that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Sarah. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in today to Seed to Harvest. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever your favorite podcast listening platform is. I'll be releasing new episodes weekly. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to let me know on Twitter. That's Page Finn, Page, and then Finn with three N's. Thanks, and see you again next week.